What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. Gang, thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got part two of my dope-ass interview with Dan Nexon, professor at Georgetown, godfather of progressive foreign policy today, though I'm pretty sure he uh, hates that I called this episode that. And in part one, if you haven't listened, take a listen. We talked a lot about his career uh, as an academic and how he got initially involved in foreign policy, but more mostly his uh, making his way on the academic track and how he grew up and got interested in international relations. Great profile of the dude. In this episode, we're getting into more substance. This is going to be, we're going to talk about his uh, forthcoming book, Exit from Hegemony, about the U.S. on the global stage. With uh, co-authored with Alex Cooley. We're going to talk, too, about the distinctions and the convergences of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. We talk about him getting involved in uh, Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, although he stresses that he is not on the campaign for 2020. And we talk about progressive foreign policy generally, what, what he makes of different debates within the left about foreign policy. Uh, as you know, as a listener of the show, uh, this is one of my like pet issues. It, progressive foreign policy comes up in some way, basically every episode. And so it's a real treat to get to talk with the guy who wrote toward a neo-progressive foreign policy about his thinking on this subject. You're going to love it. So without further ado, here's the conversation. I have a bunch of questions about like progressive foreign policy stuff, but like now that you, this is like a natural point to bring up the book that you also just wrote with Alex Cooley, right? Yes, coming like coming out. Uh, I th I think it's officially in April, but it looks like it's more kind of any time now. At least the ebook. Exit from hegemony is that right? Yeah, it's called Exit from Hegemony. It was originally called Pathways Out of Hegemony, uh, which uh, it's not as sexy. It's not as sexy, right? Um, uh, I had locked in my head this this old bungee game, Pathways into Darkness. So. <laughs> uh, and also there was a there's a great book called pathways out of dixie which is about the end of um the end of uh of jim crow um so um that book is kind of the culmination of a lot of work that alex and i did that kept on morphing and mutating uh it was underwritten by a 
grant that we got from the Norwegian Research Council through the Norwegian Institute for National Affairs, which essentially was gotten by them because they took a working paper on uh, this dynamic we call good substitution, and they flipped that into a grant. And on the early version of the grant, the first one they got from the Ministry of Defense, they paid us a consulting fee and we had to do some briefings. But on the second round, they actually, it was a larger grant and we had deliverable obligations and things like that. What's the, what's the thrust of the book? So from an academic perspective, most of the arguments we have about power transitions, you know, that is the United States is in relative decline, China's in relative rise. Um, we actually make the argument that, uh, mm -hmm. yes, it really matters whether we have great power wars. This is an important problematic. The Thucydides trap is a thing we should care about. But that um, actually, by the time that that happens, the order is usually pretty much shot. It's pretty much screwed by the time you even get to the war. That the order itself is transformed uh, through various kinds of contention during the power transition. And so yeah. we are interested in peaceful ways in which hegemonic orders unravel. And the bottom line argument and the argument that drives the book is that is happening now to the United States and to the quote unquote liberal order or to the American led order, that this is all in a fairly advanced state of unraveling. And we just don't notice it. We don't really recognize it. Although I think now more people recognize it than when we started. What's happened, uh, and it's been happening for a while, is that that it's actually, so it's a monopoly of goods provision, but it's really a cartel right? Because it's usually a combination of the Europeans, the US and Japan. Uh, that's eroded, right? That's gone. You can go to the Chinese for aid now. Even the Russians are kind of back in the game. They can't, they don't have a ton of money, yeah. but they can provide some of these same things. And once that monopoly is gone, you start getting into situations where states have exit options because they can go to somebody else. They don't have to take the deal that you're offering because they can go to somebody else. They can leverage you more for the deal. This is what happened during the Cold War was that it was very hard to enforce conditions on aid because there are all these geostrategic interests at stake. So the United States was never going to cut somebody off if there was a risk it would go to the Soviet Union or that would lead to a communist takeover. Um, but um, but during the 90s, all that conditionality started to work. Uh, and there's a lot of good empirical evidence about this. Yeah. And so now there are other providers in town. And um, and so that's the first thing, right, is you've got a loss of monopoly of patronage. Uh, the second thing is you've got uh, increased mm -hmm. demand from kind of the bottom up, from weak states for alternatives to U.S. provision of order. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. Thirdly, uh, we're interested in the development of counter-order movements, which we think is really overlooked in these transitions. That is, um, they're often associated with transnational movements that are opposed to the order and do a bunch of things to disrupt that order. So if you think about my first book, which was on uh, the rise and decline of Spanish hegemony and the struggle for power in early modern Europe, one of the big arguments I made was that we read this as a sort of standard state-to-state -state case of hegemonic uh, overextension, hegemonic transitions, but a lot of that was being caused by uh, the Protestant Protestant networks, essentially Protestant yeah, transnational sure. religious movements uh, that were giving a lot of impetus to rebellions. They were helping to finance rebellions. You also had ultra-Catholic movements on the other side. And it was really those movements that were driving a lot of the dynamics that when you look way up, just look like standard overextension dynamics. So why are the Spanish bogged down in the Netherlands? Uh, it's because of the infusion of religious issues into uh, that, that conflict. And that's why it becomes so intractable in part. If you look at the interwar period, which we spend some time on, uh, you know, again, we can tell the story about a power transition, and that's certainly going on. Mm -hmm. And that certainly matters a great deal. But you have the rise of transnational fascism and far right movements and the rise of international communism. And we specify a bunch of ways in which those movements 
have effects. Um, you know, they do things like they cat when they take over states. Those states then usually adopt revisionist postures for the order. In fact, a lot of the big revisionist states that we can think of historically are mm -hmm. the result of some counter-order movement eventually capturing that state. Um, they also link up with one another. They complicate things in various fora. They, they engage in all sorts of contention. They help fragment societies to make it harder for states that want to uphold the order to uphold the order if they're internally domestically fragmented. And again, we say this is happening now, um, that uh, the rise of far-right movements is not some sideshow. It's actually pretty important uh, to the unraveling of the so-called liberal order. Um, and it's always been- So important. when Bannon frames globalists versus nationalists, he's tapping into, and then you know going over to Europe and talking to far-right parties, mm -hmm. you're seeing that and capturing that as like manifesting a kind of uh, movement that is counter to the liberal international order, quote unquote, is that? Yeah, that's one way of thinking accurate? about it. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, although, I mean, Bannon himself is kind of behind the curve because the Europeans already have all these, and the Europeans are already interlinked in a lot of ways because of the existence of the European Parliament, because of the way that the EU uh, has, yeah. you know, and, and the Europeans actually for a long time have had kind of supranational blocks of parties. So it's much more advanced there. And as some of the scuttlebutt was people were kind of laughing at him that it was behind the times, right? That the FPO mm -hmm. and the Liga and all these other groups were already um, kind of linked up. But also you have to keep in mind that these groups are, are they're not caused by the Russian Federation. Moscow is not... Uh, bringing them about, but Moscow has seized on their existence to try to insert itself as a broker uh, in the transnational right with some amount of success. Um, and so mm. one of the conditions where this stuff gets dangerous is when you start to have state sponsors of the counter-order movement. And you've got that uh, in, in Russia. The more the easy, probably the easiest version to grasp is to think about why, what the interpolar moment actually was, right? And so the interpolar moment had a couple of characteristics. It had uh, nobody else able to provide security and economic goods to any real degree. Uh, it had a, um, it had no alternative order available um, to, because the Soviet Union had collapsed, right? And this was the triumph of liberalism, right? We we're going to all be liberals forever and yeah. ever. Uh, and it had. Uh, these foot soldiers, uh, it had it had liberal civil. We're talking about liberal international civil society. Then we had all these NGOs, transnational, subnational NGOs, uh, organizations running around that were kind of the foot soldiers of liberal ordering, right? So you know, yeah. flooding Eastern Europe, flooding uh, the former Soviet Union, post-communist space, were all these these liberalizing uh, you know civil society actors teaching people how to how to democratically protest, teaching people how to do um, independent media. Right. And, and if you now flash forward 30 years, all of that's reversed. Right. The, the, you know, the, the, there are now rival ordering principles um, there. Uh, that's facilitated and exacerbated demand for alternatives from below. Uh, and a lot of the energy is, you know, essentially a lot of these countries that were subject to this liberal ordering through transnational networks learned how to inoculate themselves from them. Uh, and then they've sort of started to roll back the tide in the other direction by funding, mm -hmm. doing to us, quote unquote, what we did to them, right, in the form of funding far right movements, sometimes far left movements, but much more frequently far right movements. So the, the, the another counter order movement, this is, I mean, so this is fascinating because this is the first time I'm like really hearing about the book because it's obviously not out yet. Um, but when you're talking about counter order movements, um, do you grapple at all with mm -hmm. the I don't know what you well, I guess you call it the anti hegemonic left. 
but like the anti-imperialist left in the United States, the basically those who are they they invoke anti-imperialism, they're anti-militarist for sure, but their their primary posture or style is to basically obsess with critiquing kind of U.S. power and U.S. involvement in the world. And they were the first ones, as soon as Trump won, to say, hey, the liberal international order is not a thing. It never existed. To the extent it existed, it was Imperial. Uh, you know, a bad thing. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that part... It seems like your argument would apply there. Is that folded in at all? Or is it is the focus more on like the transnational right? We mostly... We, we, we really... So this is, you know, it's... It, I've made it, the reason why I'm sort of regretting the way I cut into this is we made it sound like a much more academic book than it actually is. Mm. I mean, so so we do a lot of case studies, right? We're not doing kind of comprehensive stuff. So when we talk about, uh, you know, I guess the further left or the far left, it's largely in the context of our chapter on far right movements, which is focusing on the ways that the Russians have tried to link into to far right movements. Uh, you know, when when Russia wants to go out and fund the far right, I don't think they really care that much about the far right, right? They care about dividing and sort of it's a it's a smash operation to try to increase um divisions and conflict within so chaos yeah yeah, and so the left's just as good for them i think um they don't really care right um uh but the far right is so much stronger internationally than the far left right now that it's just not it, it, it doesn't occupy a lot of our attention. I mean, you know that I've, I actually have real problems with the anti-imperial left. I think putting aside certain individuals, um, I think that the movement overall has its heart in the right place. I mean, the United States has done horrifically atrocious things that have involved intervening in other countries and killing yeah. lots of people. Yeah. Um, there is a, you know, the, the, neoliber- the neoliberalization of liberal order is a thing. Uh, and it's something that no matter where you are on the progressive spectrum, you, you should have a real problem with. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do think that um, there is a tendency to slip into my the enemy of my enemy is my friend and my enemy is U.S. imperialism. And that creates a lot of blind spots. For one thing, yeah. it, it, it leads people to not recognize that there's a lot of empire and imperial relations out there. And a lot of them have nothing to do with the United States. It, it comes from a place where you just assume you can never have voice a real power in in the United States, right? Where you can never have influence, even influencing a more center left uh, mm. regime. And I think that's that's a bad way to think about American politics, right? Um, so there's a sort of notion of we, we should smash it all down, uh, and then we'll deal with what happens. Rather than thinking about well, what if we ever actually have some power? What does that mean? You know, do we really want a kind of smashed American global infrastructure for that? Do yeah. we want a world where um, we've essentially ceded the United Nations uh, and other international fora to the Chinese? Which you know, I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks we're doomed to a new Cold War with China. But you know, the the Chinese have different interests than we do, and some of those interests are not compatible with progressive worldview. I mean, if you know, Chinese would you know would love to buy influence in the United States, and they do. And when they buy influence in the United States, they're not backing, you know, things that progressives care about, right? They're backing, you know, sort of rent-seeking extraction and stuff like that. So, Well, even there's a, there is too, like a double standard in focusing on U.S. imperialism, which I know you don't recognize it as such. Um, and I agree, but uh, like there are imp- very overtly imperial traits in the China in Chinese foreign policy in its periphery, mm-hmm. like it's hard not to characterize Chinese foreign policy in imperial terms, at least with some countries, some territories. Um, and that is some that's like a pattern that we're we're sort of watching expand, but it gets marginalized by the same voices who 
uh, are so critical of U.S. imperialism. So it's like it's anti-imperial progressivism, but I don't know. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it, well, I mean, it's it's I think, you know, it's it's a relentless focus on the United States. It's a lack of, yeah. of adequate comparative thinking. And then I think there's some there's some what I would, there, you know, there's some motivated reasoning. Right. So so what are empires? Right. Empires are a way of organizing political systems. Um, and they are distinguished by a bunch of technical features, uh, but by and large, they're, they're systems in which the center, whatever it may be, is, is essentially highly autonomous from uh, the administrative segments, right? So the center has its own independent personality, uh, and we're... Uh, Controlling some, through intermediaries that are kind of distant. Right. So the, the yeah. second feature is, you know, there's a sort of logic of control through intermediaries, right? So governors, yeah. viceroys, all that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, what distinguishes empires from federal forms, federa federative forms, is that the, um, among other things, is that the center is, in the, it's the center that kind of invests the peripheries, invests the segments, gives them their power, their personality, as opposed to in a federation, for example, where the 50 states kind of in, it, through a pro, the constitutional process, endowed the federal government with its with its sovereign authorities, right? Yeah. Um, and those types of organizations are imperial forms of organization are extremely common in human history, right? Um, because they're sure, one yeah. of the major ways that they're one of the few ways we've worked out for administrating administering over long distances and big populations, right? Because um, you can't, you know, same way you can't do direct democracy effectively outside of a small republic. And so those types of organizations show up all the time and they show up a lot in U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the stuff that you're talking about the Chinese doing in some of their extra Chinese periphery is not different when the United States has done historically. I mean, there was a time in Latin America where, you know, USAID uh, officials handed newly installed governments their economic programs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there was a time when, you know, I think one of the ironies here, I'll just say, is that the United States actually looks a lot less imperial now than it did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and there was a time when we were an empire, like yeah, yeah, unquestionable. Empire, yeah. right? There's no yeah. question. And yeah. generally speaking, the United States was, and it's less so now, right? We've sort of moved towards principles of hegemony that look more federative and confederative in nature. Um, but there is a big counterexample to this, and it's the invasion and occupation of Iraq uh, and uh, in, in Afghanistan. And both yeah. of those examples, you know, led to enormous amounts of loss of blood and treasure, not just for, you know, especially for the people who are being, you know, you know, quote unquote, imperialized, right, which yeah. is not an incorrect way to describe the relationship that the United States had with Iraq, right, for for most of the Iraq well, war. Especially now. Um, the, the thing is, though, that that uh, there are actual political communities that within their sovereign boundaries are really imperial in the way they're structured. Uh, the Russian Federation is one of them. Uh, and China is one of them. China isn't just a uh, has doesn't just have significant imperial elements in the way it's organized, right? You have the sort of parallel CCP, which structure which forms a kind of imperial relationship on top of uh, a system that has imperial characteristics in the way that mm -hmm. that rule is exercised in Beijing. But it also has been engaging for decades in settler yeah. colonialism, right? In 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 in, in Xinjiang and in Tibet, um, and in. in Coin classic yeah. strategies of imperial control, like uh, moving around territorial boundaries in Tibet uh, to try to break up potential trans-regional coalitions of of mm. Tibetans and things like that. So, um, so it's a little bit weird, right? I mean, the United States itself has an empire, has a formal empire. I mean, there's Guam, 
Puerto Rico, yeah. The relationship with Puerto Rico is technically a federacy, but it has strong imperial characteristics. Um, U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, the relationship with sovereignty and nations is complicated, but it has characteristics. Those are not the things empire. that the left typically attacks when they call the U.S. an empire today, though. It's more yeah, like the alliance on, system. Yeah, or Well, you know, yeah. I once had a student who, and I was, uh, we were doing our unit on empires, said to me, well, I thought empires was just, empire was just something that happened between nation states, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, I think, a, a kind of symptom of having grown up in the last 20 years, because we don't think of sovereign nations as, as organized like empires anymore. We sort of think that's a thing of the past. Yeah. I mean, uh, the United States, if you want to talk about peak U.S. imperialism, right, it's, it's settler colonialism westward. It's the, the way the United States expanded across the continent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, followed by then uh, the colonial possessions the United States took after the Spanish-American War. So, you know, it, it, we it sort of there's a way in which all this focused on kind of the imperialism of things like capitalism or the imperialism of things like neoliberalism or the imperialism of things like um, U.S. relations with other states where those states have such limited autonomy that it's essentially an empire-like relationship, I think has really kind of distorted the way we think about empire. Um, and it's let, let us to miss a lot of obviously imperial formations for what they are. Does that make any sense? No, it does. Yeah. Like it also, it tracks very closely. This is, I mean, so it's not a fucking secret to anybody listening. Like I am of the left, but uh, I can't, and I'm sympathetic to the, the anti-imperialist or anti-hegemonic kind of arguments about U.S. power and U.S. involvement in the world. But like, I can't take it to the same degree length that they do one because i see uh i see elements of empire particularly with china uh elsewhere in the world that are not being talked about um and two i feel like keying off of like the thing you did with uh thomas mm -hmm. wright in american political science review where this is like where you actually evaluate the standards of evidence about u.s empire does it warrant the characterization or not like i've taken that to heart in a very technical sense it's hard to describe U.S. foreign policy in imperial terms writ large. There are in the past for sure, and contemporarily, you know, these days there are places where it's hard to argue that it's not an imperial structure in places like mm -hmm. Guam, right? But in the main, that's but anyway, gone. Yeah, yeah, but like in the main, that's not what anyone's referring to when they're expressing concern like there is not like get out of guam movement or like the they're not talking about like guamanian self-determination they're they're talking about the alliance system uh with nato and with uh asian allies and uh exercising american power through almost in almost like a conspiracy verges on conspiracy theory you i think you would call it like motivated reasoning but like the with you know, the World Trade Organization and the IMF or whatever. And it's like all these things that are part of an American kind of led hegemon, American centered hegemonic order. They're being like appropriated as part of like an imperial narrative. And like, I don't I don't agree with that. Um, and to 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 engage in that kind of mischaracterization at the same time that you completely overlook the empires of others that's happening in real time. I have. I have all kinds of problems with that. To some degree, the debate about American empire is a distraction. Um, the question is whether or not U.S. foreign policy is good or bad. How can you change um, yeah. And so plenty of things can be really bad ways of doing foreign policy without sure. characterizing them as imperial. Uh, I think imperial is you know, a normatively loaded word. 
I think it does, like you, I think it accurately describes uh, and has described and still describes uh, slices of American foreign relations. I think there are situations in which the International Monetary Fund's relationship with some of its with dependent states has started to look something like I'm comfortable calling an imperial relationship. Um, and I think that questions that are are tied to that about, say, democratic deficits in international organizations, international institutions are serious questions that the left needs to deal with. But I think, um, you know, what I find frustrating is I will say, I will have these arguments with people and I'll say, well, look, I, I just don't think there's as much empire in U.S. foreign relations in 2020 as you think there is or 2019. And the assumption is that then I have to defend U.S. foreign policy. When yes, I'm not this is also my frustration. <laughs> like, yeah, um, you don't want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the where it does bother me is particularly in people who are defending China or Russia, either in a knee jerk way or perhaps for reasons that are more conspiratorial that have to do with their fundings coming from. Um, who are prominent in certain areas of the left. I, I, I know that's a terrible accusation to make, but there's non-transparency, and I don't understand why people who think of themselves as anti-imperialists are defending, are talking about CIA plots in Hong Kong, or defending uh, internment camps in 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 Western China. Yeah. I just I don't get that. Right? How is that a progressive position? Um, you can talk about like you know. He, you know, get the log out of your own eye or whatever it is first. That's fine, right? You can talk about American concentration camps. Yeah. We've got them. Uh, we don't have to, you know, have a one-upmanship on who's worse. But the idea that you would defend those practices, you defend a corrupt, you defend corrupt kleptocratic regimes that are, by the way, pushing right-wing cultural policy. I, I just I don't see it. But anyway, that so I don't know where that's coming from. Um, uh, and it's it's maddening and very frustrating. Um, well, this but, is the um, entry for your foreign affairs piece, right? The toward a neo-progressive foreign policy. What's 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 the back thinking on this? Also, I'm not outing you if I say you were an advisor to Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Is that? No, no. I, I mean, I sort of I didn't publicize it for a while. Because I felt awkward because we didn't really do much of anything, right? I mean, we produced a lot of paper, but I don't that's think a, you know that's that, all of that us campaign anyway, was running yeah. on twelve. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that campaign was running on twelve cylinders before they started mm -hmm. to really build a policy shop, and so the policy stuff never mm -hmm. really caught up to the campaign. Um, and you know, I, it was interesting for me, and a lot of I, I, I generated a ton of ideas. We were able to write that that letter in support of Bernie. You know, we have op eds that were never mm -hmm. used and things like that. Um, but it is also important to note that I, I, I'm no longer, I'm not advising the campaign right now. Um, okay. And, um, and, and because right now I, I, you know, I decided that right now I plan to vote for, for Warren and that's not. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're both, not... they're both great, but yeah, I'm in Warren's camp uh, unquestionably. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'd, I'd love either. I mean, I guess to me, this sort of Warren Sanders, there's gotta be fights because they're competing for the same space. And right now yeah. Sanders is out competing Warren for that space. Mm. I don't have a problem with that, but I find some of the kind of, um, you know, some of the, the tenor of the online fighting uh, between camps is just silly as far as I'm concerned. But, yeah. um, but uh, the, uh, so, uh, yeah, so that basically and that that's just another one of those contingent things where, you know, the, the Clinton inevitability strategy involved locking down pretty much all of the foreign policy establishment, including the more left wing foreign policy establishment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so um, at some point, you know, when the campaign was putting together things, they were 
you know, they didn't, they couldn't go to the standard players. And so people like me who, you know, had some policy background, but, and then were people who were sort of had a lot of policy background, but were sort of outside of the Washington establishment. Those are the people who wound up kind of in that group um, of people who were, who were then liaison with the, with the foreign policy guy who was, who Sanders, Bill French, who, who was actually working for the campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I like to say, you know, I, I'm a C-lister, but the, most of the, the, the A and Bs were all taken, you know, were all writing stuff that was being thrown out by Clinton as part of this, you know, kind of, you ever want to have a job or you ever want to have a place in the Democratic Party, you got to kind of get in line. Talent and, monopoly, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was frustrating, honestly. Like, <laughs> there were better people out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, but that did get me thinking a lot about progressive foreign policy. And part of it actually was, you know, part of it was things I'd some of these ideas that were percolating from my time at the Pentagon, believe it or not, part of it was um, part of it was in particular sort of thinking about how the stuff that Bernie was really good on and comfortable with interfaced with broader foreign policy principles. So the first thing that became apparent is that Bernie's equality agenda at home is a national greatness agenda. Right. If you want to label that right, that the kinds of things that we would do to make big investments in human capital, to make big investments in, you know, equality of opportunity, which means getting a lot more human capital, getting a lot more education, getting a lot more research and development, all the infrastructure, all these things. These are once upon a time. And I don't want to say, you know the people who, who thought this weren't racist and all sorts of bad things. But then it's much of the time then this would have been thought of as national greatness, progressive agenda. And here, so A, that was kind of natural. And if you, and what's funny is that if you read the Obama national security strategies, particularly the first one, there is this notion that the United States to restore its quote unquote leadership needs to start at home through these kinds of programs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so they just didn't really get as much of it as we'd like and didn't really yeah. tackle the, 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 the harder stuff or didn't get the more extreme stuff mm-hmm. that would really generate, I think, a lot of equality or opportunity. But so that was the first thing, right, that, that Bernie's domestic program is entirely compatible with um, a um, notion of uh, progressive leadership, right? Yeah. And in fact, would have to be part of that. I mean, the, it's ironic that the people who scream the most about upholding U.S. power in the world are the people who have domestic policies that would gut the the, the legs out of that power, right? That is yeah. the Republicans, the far right. The, right. We actually have a chapter in the book about this when we talk about Trump and Trump's relationship to the trajectory of American hegemony, which is the place where I get most progressive foreign policy in this, in this hmm. book. Um, but the... Um, uh, pointing out, but so where was I? So then at the time, the funny thing was though, that I was not really fully processing what was happening with Russian, uh, information operations in the United States. And because, and I think I was very much focused on one of my concerns was that coming out of doing some Russia policy is that, you know, Russia was a tough nut, right? Because on the one hand, you know, the Russians, from if you take their perspective on what the U.S. has been up to, they've ha- they have some very legitimate grievances. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the Russians aren't necessarily a great actor in the world, um, nor is the U.S. knows really anybody. Right. <laughs> but some of the ways in which the Russians are not a great actor are things that I think are inconsistent with progressive values. And so I was sort of really interested in how do we calibrate that relationship. So I was you know concerned about being too hawkish versus being too soft line. But I was more concerned about hawkishness, to be honest. Um, yeah. uh, but then towards after things wound down and we got into the the later part of the campaign, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 
doing stuff for Sanders anymore. I was just watching events unfold and fruitlessly arguing with Bernie or Busters on Twitter about why we had to suck it up and vote for Clinton. Um, uh, That... um, and, and then also trying to point out lots of ways in which the sort of stuff that isn't high profile in Clinton foreign policy that she did state is actually quite progressive, mainstreaming of gender, mainstreaming of gay rights, uh, you know, stuff that mm-hmm. is sort of the day-to-day boring shit in international politics but has an effect. Um, and that isn't involved yeah. actually, you know, going out and, and being imperialist with other countries in any meaning of the term. Uh, but so that I started to sort of think hard about the stuff and, and started to put things together uh, and then after the election, I really kind of sat down and wrote some bullet points about what I thought progressive foreign policy was, what I thought the big issue was at the time. I was so worried about um, sort of throwing out the good stuff with liberal order with the bad. And as far as I could tell, Trump wanted the bad stuff and none of the good stuff that I was even thinking that maybe the neoconservatives yeah. were the allies because they care about they, they have some baseline kind of rhetorical commitment to human rights. I no longer think that. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, but uh, but the um, with some, some exceptions, but basically I no longer think that. Um, yeah. uh, and um, and so these kind of percolated, and um, and I was writing these things at at, uh, at lawyers, guns, and money, kind of touching on these matters and talking about sort of how how the various dilemmas we have, talking about the rise of the far right and what that actually starts to mean for what the world, how we sort of understand the world as progressives, what we, what kind of moment we're in in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how do we make sense of, 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 of Russia's, Russia trying to put its, even if it didn't have an effect, Russia, the fact that Russia was interested in putting its thumb on the scale for Trump, right? Uh, and is interested in, in, in providing financing mm-hmm. and assistance to everybody from the World Congress of Families to, you know, post-fascist parties in Europe. Um, and, and so these ideas, plus the stuff I'd done, I'd done with, with, with the Sanders campaign, it was always percolating around. And then I got asked to do a piece on what is progressive foreign policy for foreign affairs. And that uh, kind of brought it together there. But by that time, I have to say that I was not ahead of the curve. You know, the Sanders Westminster speech, a lot of what I have to say is in Sanders Westminster speech, for example. And uh, oh, a lot of, yeah, yeah a lot of like thematic. Right. And I think that's because, you know, I like to think it's because I was writing stuff and talking to Matt and Matt Duss, his foreign policy guy, I was reading some of my stuff. And Matt is also yeah. a brilliant guy. Uh, and we'd be very, friend of the pod, we'd be yeah. very lucky if he, if he winds up being our national security advisor. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there was a lot of circulation, um, and so that was helpful because then I didn't have to. I could turn to to what Sanders was saying, even some stuff that Warren was saying, um, uh, and uh, the the foreign, you know, and and kind of draw on that. So, so that's kind of how it happened, I think. So on uh, on Warren versus Sanders, mm-hmm. or we, this has come up several times already, but like uh, on foreign policy in particular, do you see daylight? Um, if so, where? What do you make of what do you make of their differences versus similarities? So, I mean, one of the problems with these exercises is that people mostly focus on these campaign statements and rhetoric. And I'm not just I mean, you've worked in campaigns. I'm just not sure how meaningful that is. I mean, I remember so much of it comes down to like distribution among. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I saw people picking apart questions and answers. and I'm just like, come on. Right. You know these were farmed out to X people that was farmed out to Y people. That's why you get the answers. You yeah. Get, right. Um, yeah. Uh, so I do think that where they definitely converge is on the view that uh, transnational oligarchy and kleptocracy is, uh, is one of the central issues for progressives that we cannot mm-hmm. have progressivism simply in the United States precisely because 
of what we call neoliberalism, right? Precisely because uh, neoliberalism has been uh, co-opted. Transnational, global. Yeah, yeah. dictators without borders, right? You know, um, money laundering. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the stew Trump comes out of, right? Um, You know, Manafort, um, Democratic advisors. There's just, you know, too much money floating around that can then be deployed uh, in the interests of... uh, of, you know, essentially people are stealing from their people, right? And in the United States too, mm-hmm. right? Our, our oligarchs, our, our kleptocratic impulses, our rent seekers, they're all kind of linked into the same things, right? I mean, um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think they both agree on that. Um, I think they, that Sanders has been stronger on articulating the notion that, you know, we really do have to care about I mean, Warren's done this too, but I think Sanders has been stronger and more consistent on on seeing the idea of, you know, seeing this problem, which is that we are facing a far, a growing far right international, um, and these people want nothing mm. that is compatible with progressive causes, and that the Trumpism is part of that general kind of stew. Um, so, yeah. uh, I mean, Warren said some stuff about that, but it's not as highlighted and it's not as systematic. And part of that, I think, is that Sanders is able to say Sanders when Sanders looks at the stuff right he looks at the stuff as somebody who's in you know, as a 60s socialist right and so he's yeah. used to the idea of the politics of, of international movements the idea of transnational solidarity is very core to the way he talks about the world now Warren mm-hmm. was a conservative for a long time and she she had a series of epiphanies and so she doesn't use she uses language that's much more technocratic uh, much more um, you know, has a different kind of focus, but I mean, substantively, I don't know what that really means. Um, and I don't. And one of the problems is I don't really. The problem of what we do about it is a really. That's a tough nut to crack, right? I mean, it's one thing to say uh, we have to recognize that there's a rising tide of reactionary politics, which is being supported out of some countries. Another thing, saying, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to support? Is the U.S. government going to throw its weight behind? left-wing movements, uh, you know, I, I, in democracies, you know, I, I don't know, right? Uh, I don't know how that actually yeah. works. Um, and that's something that get worked out at the kind of nuts and bolts level and within the constraints of kind of, a, you know, kind of our value system. So yeah. uh, I think that, you know, Warren's been a little bit more out front on trade, uh, not in terms of the rhetoric, but in terms of having concrete proposals and particularly on the use of U.S. regulatory power uh, to enact progressive uh, progressive things. Um, uh, I don't think Sanders is opposed to that, though. <laughs> I just don't think it's been as. You know, I know that there are people around Sanders who are talking about this. Um, you know, Abe and I wrote a foreign policy piece that was trying to kind of push people in that direction. Um, uh, and so, you know, I don't know there. I mean, uh, you know, I think. I mean, the only thing that I think I sort of feel with confidence on is that um, Sanders has longer standing commitments to certain issues than Warren does, um, particularly, say, the cause of Palestinian justice. Um, mm-hmm. And so that might, you know, whenever you get into power, right, you know, all of this sort of the American international foreign policy complex is big and is big and complicated and full of inertia and full of all these competing demands and trade-offs that it's easy to ignore when you're outside of it. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, when you actually get inside of it, you know, what gets, and this isn't about the deep state thwarting you, it's about just, you know. You get tempered by complexity and bureaucracy. Right. But then yeah. you, get, you face fundamental questions like, are we willing to push this issue far enough to, to break the bilateral alliance with Saudi Arabia? 
Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't, but, you know, that there are points in which you have to really make um, uh, trade-offs. And there are negative consequences to whichever way you go. Um, uh, So, you know, in practice, you know, I think somebody said, you know, a lot of it will come down to staffing. I think that was when I was fighting with Dan Bester, and I think he's right about that. I mean, I think um, certainly... uh, Warren, you know, but both the foreign policy teams are are fairly diverse, uh, I think. Who knows? I mean, I think it's, you know, the thing is that people who fight about this is it'll be a lot of the same people, right? A lot of the policy shop at, at in the Sanders group will probably want to wind up with or, or have be in serious contention for policy shops in the Warren administration and vice versa. Yes, that's I, I see so yeah. much um, simpatico overlap. Right? I don't know how, how to phrase it, but like, that uh, it seems silly to like knife each other right now, yeah. because particularly in contrast, like Warren and Sanders compared to everybody else imaginable, they just have so much more in common than difference. So you supported Sanders in 16 and you're supporting Warren now. Like, I'm sure there are some who are in like, uh, you know, vice versa positions and we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Um by accentuating the differences between these two too much, I think. There are perfectly but, good uh, reasons. If you have certain priorities, and Sanders sounds like he'll be better on those priorities um, yeah. than on, say, foreign policy, that's a perfectly good reason to support Sanders. If you have certain priorities and Warren sounds like she'd be better on those priorities, that's a perfectly good reason to support Warren. Uh, I don't think foreign policy is ever the whole body of the thing. And I could talk about why I'm, you know, leaning Warren right now um, to sort of elevate, there's a tendency to sort of, it's it's this, it's like what you see, right, within any political movement, right, with left-wing political movements, the sort of you know, focus on these very small differences and, uh, or, or appearances of differences and kind of elevate them into to grand Manichaean struggles. And it's just fucking yeah. ridiculous. It's a waste yeah. of time. Um, I think we agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I've taken up a shitload of your time, but I feel like I've gotten a lot out of this. And since like 80% of my audience is progressive of one sort or another, uh, I think they appreciated hearing from you. So I'm going to say thank you, but also exit from hegemony in bookstores in April? March, it says probably April. Um, You can pre-order now. Um, uh, I I think if you, uh, I I think if you are not somebody who reads, so it's in a hybrid academic trade list. Uh, so it's an Oxford book, but it's written in a trade kind well, of. Well, so they have a list which is they have they have tra- straight trade. It's not written as a trade straight trade book. It's they have straight academic stuff. It's not written as a straight academic book. Um, I will tell you this: my father, who has no background in international relations and is completely unbiased, <laughs> uh, read the first few chapters, including the one that I'm most worried about in terms of the level of kind of theory. And he said they were fine, that we, anytime we did anything that was a little bit technical, mm. we, we spent time explaining what we meant uh, and that they were, it was fine to follow. And what, and then a lot of the book is just, you know, it's what's going on uh, with the, with, with Chinese and Russian alternative order building, what's going on with uh, states that are, are playing off different patrons against one another. It's very kind of contemporary. Uh, we track, we have, we track things like the big increase and joint affiliation ties between China and Russia and other states over the last 10 or 15 years to show the way in which there's a kind of alternative order developing uh, in, in international politics centered around uh, particularly China, um, and, you know, in which we get the highlights of the, Asia, the AIB, the New Development Bank, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but there's just a lot of that going on. We also talk specifically about why 
uh, why and what elements of liberal order became so threatening that the Chinese and the Russians decided to push back against them, but also how they're not necessarily pushing back against every element of liberal order. And we need to be careful about confusing liberal order as a singular with yeah. a with a, a broader thing. And we do have, I think, real meat for progressives. I think that that people who aren't quite sure what to make of some of the dynamics I've talked about with the far right will we'll at least get a perspective by reading both what we say historically about counter-order movements, but also what we trace in terms of, of far right activism and the way it ties into Russia. And, and again, not from this kind of weird conspiratorial Russia's behind everything, but from understanding sort of what actually is going on there and, and how uh, it's a mistake to attribute everything to Russia, but it's also a, a bad idea to not understand what they're, that are try, how they're trying to insert themselves into those networks. Give them the pass, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I think we have a very actually fair take on Trump, right? Obviously, I'm no fan of Trump, but we really go out of our way to say that, you know, um, that this is – that Trump's a symptom and he's an accelerant, but he's not causing these dynamics. Um, uh, he's making some of them worse. Uh, uh, and I think we. I characterized some... him the exact same way in my in my on the brink North Korea book, by the way. Yeah, but, yeah. I think it's the, the. I don't know why we all settled on this language independently, but I think it's right. I mean, he's. Um, uh, and I think we have some interesting things, speculative things to say about potential future orders and what they might look at. And there, I mean, we talk a little bit about questions about you know sort of neoliberalism simply becoming a vehicle for for kleptocracy, globalized kleptocracy, things mm. like that. So yeah. I think if if that's your cup of tea, uh, I would. You know, I'd love to read it and hear what people have to say about it, what people think about it. That's awesome. Well, okay, so you heard it there. Power transitions, China, Russia, kleptocracy, far-right movements, how to contextualize Trump. There's a lot going on here. Liberal internationalism. <laughs> There's a lot of categories of interest here. Um, all right, thanks, man. Oh, and then you blog at Lawyers, Guns, and Money, right? Yes, uh, not as much as I should be. I've, I've been, been out of the loop trying to get things done. You know how it is, but I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get back in. So. And then you're uh, omnipresent on Twitter, of course. All right, man. Well, okay. uh, thanks for coming on the show. This has been awesome. You're very welcome. It's been fun. All right. Who doesn't cool. like to talk about themselves? <laughs> All right. Thanks, man.